Our deductions make perfect sense. But if Smiley is behind the Chupacabra attacks, then how do we explain that? It sure doesn't look like a special effect to me. It is the monster! Chupacabra! Like this is gonna be bad. Real bad. I'm Steven. And I'm Brandy. And welcome to Bring Receipts. On this podcast, Brandy and I debate our unpopular opinions about pop culture. In this episode, we're talking about our favorite tales from the hood. We're going deep on the Alabama leprechaun and the legend of chupacabras. And debating which of these two folktales teaches the more valuable lesson. Clearly, clearly, it's the leprechaun in the hood. Joining us to decide who is right... The Puerto Rican Ethel Merman. Hello. Teresa Basilio Gastambide. So pull up a seat. It's time to bring receipts. And we are back for season two. Brandy, the people have been clamoring for us to come back. What have we been up to since season one? How are you doing? I, I don't even talk to you unless we're recording. So it's been, it's been what, like seven, eight months now? <laughs> well, it, I mean, yes, we just dropped like two episodes in October and December. But yes, it has been seven months. It's not months part of the canon. It's not part of the Bring Receipts canon. Oh, we don't acknowledge. <laughs> we don't there. acknowledge those. So, it's yeah, like the and- first three Star Wars episodes. We don't, they're not part of the whole timeline. And so in the last eight months since I've seen or talked to you or or like seen your face at all, I've been finishing up the book that folks are going to hear a lot about in really annoying ways over the last um, few months. I've been um, doing some investigating on January 6th and waiting for some accountability, um, which is also eating up a lot of my time and then getting sick um, from the Omarion variant for my, for my loving family members. What have you been up to? I've been, I've been, I've been just hunkering down like in my own little bomb shelter since, since we recorded season one, actually that's not entirely true. I ended up moving, um, I bought a house and I moved to Arizona. So I'm now in the desert um, cause I needed to get away from things. Uh, it's been, it's been busy. Yeah. We saw like a violent insurrection and, uh, a pandemic that just refuses to go away. I think in my mind, like when we wrapped up season one, I was like, okay, cool. We're going into the summer. Maybe we can like, we can like link up to like actually record some, some episodes. And I actually think we had plans to do that because you were going down to, to New Mexico. Yeah. I went to New Mexico for my dad's induction into the New Mexico sports hall of fame. And I was like, well, we'll get together. We'll get to record together. And uh, of course, that never happened. But it's exciting to be back for season two. I know that we actually released uh, like a a teaser a few months ago trying to talk about like what season two was going to be about. And initially, I think we had ideas of it being this like, you know, initially we were like 90s mysteries. And now I think we've evolved into what we're settling into, which will be the official theme for season two, which is 90s versus. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I feel like that's like the real reason actually why it's taken us this many months, because we've cycled through so many 
aspirations in terms of what this season was going to be. Very true. And like, you know, recorded some episodes that may see the light of day someday. But I think that, um, you know, I'm excited to dig into the 90s. I think that's something that a lot of folks are also excited about because a lot of our, you know, friends and listeners and folks, like we don't remember the 80s necessarily in the same way that we do the 90s. Like we remember the 80s, but like I feel like for a lot of us, the 90s were the times in which we were, you know, um, moving into our, our teens and 20s and and that time in your life where you can really remember um, stuff and it's not just like shadows of memories. So I'm excited to dig into some things that may be more familiar with folks. And we decided to switch up the format to have it be more of a versus. So instead of, you know, arguing one side of um, a question, um, such as should Sylvester Stallone have won an Oscar, instead, we're going to pit two things against each other and then argue to the death which thing is better in this context yeah and i'm really excited to to get into some of the very many different topics and as you know with us like unpopular opinions about pop culture so you you you're gonna expect some stuff that when you think about the 90s you cringe we're gonna be talking about those things um now today we're focusing on uh two kind of folk tales that um, permeate through our respective communities. Uh, we're talking about the Crichton Leprechaun and the Chupacabras, and both are, you know, indicative of folktales. So I actually was curious, Brandy, what sort of folktales were really active in your family growing up? <laughs> um, I think there was a lot of stuff around things that I think if I just said them straight out, wouldn't be funny to people, but a lot of stuff around like PTSD, to be honest, because we had a lot of uh, military vets in our family. So there were a lot of folk tales around, you know, people coming back from Vietnam and not quite being the same and, you know, doing different things at family events. A lot of talk of like divorce and cycling through several wives that became like <laughs> the source of folk tales and urban legends. So it was, it, I think in hindsight, it was a lot of dark things, but built out of the sort of circumstances in which we were living and experiences, which I think is a lot of, you know, what we'll get into in this episode. But what was a folktale that was active in your family growing up? We had several. Um, so my family came up in an area of El Salvador that was like immensely rural. And so it was actually like pretty typical, like there were like multiple stories that circulated um, in our family growing up. And my, my uncles would tell me the stories like at night to just scare me and stuff. But there was one I remember very vividly, which was about uh, El Cipitin is what uh, the the character was called. And it was like a supposed to be like a really young child um, wearing like a big hat who had feet that were facing in the wrong direction. Um like both feet were facing in the other direction, like completely opposite. And apparently like the, the story is about um, this child really emerging from like the love affair, kind of a forbidden love affair. And uh, between, I think like an indigenous woman and uh, a Spanish man. Uh, and so this child came out, you know, deformed or whatever. And, uh, but there's this legend of a CP theme kind of popping up you know, for people in the rural parts of El Salvador. And 
you know, just creating mischievousness, like, you know, messing with people's crops and like fucking with like the animals and stuff. And like, uh, a lot of my uncles would talk about like sightings of like El Cipitin and you would see all these kind of like little feet, like sightings all, all over the place. And people would go mad trying to track down, you know, who was fucking up all their shit, you know, their, their crops and stuff. And, um, but the thing about it was like you you follow the footsteps and you're you're actually going in the wrong direction. Um, and apparently, like I think the Cipitin's mom was this other legend, all the other kind of legendary folktale figure called La Siwanaba, which was this woman that like supposedly would try to like seduce you know men in in the in the back country of El Salvador. And there was like, they, they were told yeah. as like scary stories, as like cautionary tales, stay away. Um, but yeah, those are, those are at least a couple of the ones I remember. And there were, there were several others, but it was just like, it was pretty, you know, those are the kinds of stories you would tell like your kids, you know, growing up and were, were very See, real, felt very real. That's kind of, but they're kind of fun too. Like, I feel like in my family, it's like stories like, oh yeah, your grandfather was a, an undertaker, but he had a habit of showing up for the bodies before they fell. Like, it's like that kind of, kind of stuff. It's you not know, he was like, a serial killer. He might have been a serial like, killer. We're, we're not sure. Like dark, like he, he like dark <laughs> shit. Well, this ours was dark too, because I think people would say like, uh, you know, in some ways, yeah. like, you know, there would be people I would see when I would go back to El Salvador who, um, you know, had, had obviously been afflicted by something, you know, had some, some, uh, mental health issue or something else. And like, people would explain it away by saying, oh, that person, you know, saw La Siwanaba. He used, you know, he used to be super normal before then. Um, which I think is interesting. Like, I think nowadays when I think about folktales and having studied them only a little bit, I know you've studied them, you know, much more. Like, I think it speaks to, I think, kind of the, the function that these stories play in our lives. Um, but before we get too far down the pipeline on folktales, why don't we bring in our special guest for this episode who will be guest judging. I actually have the pleasure of working with this person. Um, Teresa Basilio Gastampide is the current network director at the National Racial Justice Organization, Media Justice. Um, actually, Teresa has like a really long like steeped history in working towards like people controlled media and technology. Uh, she previously ran the youth media organization, uh, based out of New York City called Global Action Project. Um, also ran a project that helped, um, communities build their own wireless broadband networks. And, and if that's not enough, Teresa is also a filmmaker who's currently working on a documentary about the history of the Puerto Rican Socialist Party in the United States, uh, tentatively titled, Everybody Wants a Revolution. Welcome to the pod, Teresa. How are you doing? Oh, I love that. I love that title. That's Thanks. so dope. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm a big fan. Thank you. Well, we're so happy to have you here. Um, I did kind of just want to throw a question to you, like since we were just talking about folktales that we grew up kind of listening to, there are the serial killer stories that Brandy's family populated. And then there's, <laughs> there's the folktales that, that I came up with, like El Cipitin. Mm -hmm. uh, what were some of the folktales you grew up around? 
Well, it's funny, Brandy, you brought up like your family stories. So I do think that there's two categories. There's like family stories that are like, yeah, kind of like urban legends, but really limited to the family. And then there's ones that are broader, right? And when I was thinking about this first, I thought about um, when I, so I was born in Puerto Rico and I lived there until I was seven years old. And what I remember a lot is a lot of, um, uh, a lot of stories about being taken by aliens on UFOs. So mm. <laughs> people were always talking about that, like wow. how you have to be really careful. And um, the one place where I was personally told to to be careful about was El Yunque, which is the, the rainforest, mm. the tropical rainforest in Puerto Rico. And I was told, you know, don't wander off alone, because if you do, the aliens will get you. <laughs> wow. And, you know, stay close to the family. So it was a little bit of like a family, like you don't want to move away from the family. You know, aliens will get you. But on a family tip, um, the most common sort of stories that I heard were about the the ability of my family to um, talk to the dead <laughs> and uh, to tell the future. So my great grandmother, Abuela Paca, used to read uh, people's fortunes. And... um she used like those Spanish cards, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, the story goes that she, you know, she was pretty famous in her circle and people would come to see her to hear about their future. And um, at one point she was doing it and she saw something really bad that was going to happen to this person. And I guess it did happen. And so she became convinced that it was the work of the devil. So she stopped doing it. Mm. But... Uh, it didn't stop my grandmother, her daughter, from uh, doing, a, a, you know, the, the evil eye on people. And she told me all sorts of stories about, like, how she would, you know, she had a, a teacher in, in school that gave her a bad grade. And she said if she she gave him the malojo and was like, if this grade wasn't deserved, may you break both your legs. And then he had a some kind of accident and broke both his legs. Wow. Whoa. So yeah. <laughs> that well that reminds me of the thing that that they used to put on kids, you know, to protect kids from mal de ojo. Um mm -hmm. at least when I was growing up it would be uh I know I had it. It was like a little red bracelet with a with a stone. I don't know what kind of stone it was, but like every every Salvadorian kid I ever grew up around had it because it was like mm -hmm. you had to protect you had to protect your kids away from people who had this sort of power, this like this ability, like, like my grandmother, you know, like negative <laughs> intentions to like mm -hmm. cast like a, you know, cast some sort of like negative spell on your kid or whatever, or had like ma bad thoughts. Like you have to protect against people like that. Um, that's so fascinating. Wow. I hadn't thought of those bracelets in a minute, but it's a. Uh, it just felt like commonplace for me growing up. I'm trying to think if there's like something that I could relate to in my understanding or experience of like black American culture. And I can't come up with anything beyond like the cross. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really fascinating to me that you guys, that you, that you grew up that way. And I don't, I've like never heard that before. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's this, like, you know, I think what's interesting to me about the presence of these like folk tales and like, you know, sort of common practices that feel very commonplace and feel very logical is it's like there is a there is a role that these stories play in kind of transmitting an idea like a, a set of values right like the idea of like don't stray too far from your family because when you stray too far from your family bad mm -hmm. things happen right 
um, or the story mm-hmm. of like La Ciguanaba, uh, and I probably like an effective story to try to prevent like you know a lot of the fucking uh, cheating men in El Salvador from like straying outside of like their their you know their relationships. Um, you know, so I think there is there is a way that these stories like try to like reinforce certain values to keep us on a very particular path. And I'm curious what you all think about, you know, what other roles I think, you know, folktales might or what other kind of purposes folktales might play in our lives. I will say that like the the stories of my family um, being close to the dead and having all these like powers um, that sort of like, came from God, I guess. <laughs> I think it was connected to God. I think it was a way of rewriting the story of um, of our family and of which of which my grandmother was very fond of. Um, she had her story to tell, which was not the story that I have since learned is true. And so when she would talk about her um, that the brothers and sisters of her mother, right? they all had mental illness issues. They were all in and out of, of um, mental institutions. And she would talk about them as having like powers that they were close to God mm. and that they could speak to, you know, so it was a way of like rewriting the story um, from something that was like a, a lot of shame in our family to something of like our family was special, you know, because they had these, these abilities. Wow. It also makes me think of like a lot of the, early folk tales that, um, you know, were present within, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, Western African tribes and stuff that had stories of the, the white men. Like there were, I think the, the idea of cannibalism, like was a thing that like was pretty present in that time period, like right before, right during kind of the, the, um, the forced enslavement of people and, and forced migration of people out into the territories here in the Americas. But the, there were stories of like the white men are cannibals that like as a, almost like a, to, to stay away from them, right? Like don't trust them. And almost as a way to like prevent people from stepping into, to danger. Um, so yeah, it's like, it, there's kind of that rewriting the story and telling and repositioning the characters so that you can take a story that might be of like, you know, of uh, powerlessness into something that's a little more, that's more benevolent and more powerful. And then there are these places where these stories actually serve as like defense mechanisms, like stay away from danger, you know, and trying mm-hmm. to explain like dangerous mm-hmm. things around us. Um well, can I pivot us into the topic for today? Like we're talking about two, um, two of these types of folktales and, uh, we'll get a little bit deeper into kind of the function and role that they played. And Brandy, I want to kick it to you to talk to us about the Crichton leprechaun. Um, this was something I, like, I didn't know a whole lot about until you, you brought it up to me. Yeah. You brought it up to me. I'd never heard of it. Yeah. Um, and then I, I just also want to add a bit about what you guys were saying, because I think that definitely ties into um, this legend. I, I think I want to double down on this piece around, um, you know, retelling a story to um, have it come from a place of empowerment instead of shame. And I think, you know, I don't necessarily think of this as folktale in the traditional sense. But one of the things that I think of is, you know, a lot of black people to explain, you know, hair texture or skin um, complexion will say something like, oh, yeah, we have Native American ancestry. But most 
of us actually don't or have a small amount. And, and it often comes from having been raped, frankly, by a, you know, white enslaver. So it's like those kind of like little things that you don't necessarily think about. But I think, you know, some of the the functions of folk tales in in Black America that we've seen are similar to what you guys have talked about. So it's like a way to convey lessons um, and, you know, pass down um, uh, understanding of you know, dangers in society. Um, and also to tell a story of coming out on top and persevering through challenges. It's a way to speak in coded language, um, particularly historically, you know, post-Civil War and really continuing to this day, um, Black people, you know, enslaved folks weren't necessarily able to speak freely about certain concepts like liberation or really speak freely about much of anything. And so these fairy tales and folk tales became a way to like, you know, communicate ideas, even like warnings that could be as literal as where not to go or where the Underground Railroad is or like, you know, um, things, things of that nature. Um, also a way to kind of like protect the community. Um, but they also have like more of a fun aspect, which we'll get to in this. And that's to like, not just like be like, don't mess with white people, which is definitely a huge thing. But it's also to make fun of white people. I think what's kind of interesting is that, um, White people generally, for a number of reasons, have a hard time believing that Black people are capable of, like, frankly, trolling hard because they think that trolling requires a certain amount of intellectual prowess um, that through implicit bias and other things, people don't always think that Black people have. And so, like, these very, these, like, folk tales and urban legends are, were sometimes sort of this function of, like, literally making fun of white people right in front of them. Well, they're just like, oh, look at those, like, little, can I say pickaninnies dancing? Um, but, you know, wh- while they had like a rather, you know, simplistic view of Black people and and what Black people would be thinking or how they would like sort of engage in um, intellectual games. And so that that brings us to the Crichton um, Leprechaun, which for my fairy tale um, finds us its origins in the Crichton neighborhood of Mobile, Alabama. It's also referred to as the Mobile Leprechaun in the Alabama Leprechaun. It appeared in a news story um, with a local NBC affiliate. Remember I said that because we'll come back to it. In March 14, 2006, as part of a news segment, a local resident claimed to have seen a shape-shifting leprechaun appear in a tree and then disappear. Residents from the neighborhood came out in droves. And in the news report, you have multiple people claiming they're able to see it. Can we just, can we fire up a little piece of that just so that people can get some of that flavor? Well, just in time for St. Patrick's Day, crowds are coming by the dozens to get an up-close view at what some say is a piece of Irish folklore. Some people in the Crichton area of Mobile say a leprechaun is taking up residence in their neighborhood. A leprechaun. NBC 15's (laughs) Brian Johnson has more. Curiosity leads to large crowds in Mobile's Crichton community, many of you bringing binoculars, camcorders, even camera phones to take pictures. To me, it looked like a leprechaun to me. I got to do look up in the tree. Who else in the leprechaun say yeah? Eyewitnesses say the leprechaun only comes out at night. If you shine a light in its direction, it suddenly disappears. This amateur sketch resembles what many of you say the leprechaun looks like. Others find it hard to believe and have come up with their own theories and explanations for the image. My theory is it's casting a shadow from the other limb 
could be a crackhead that got hold to the wrong stuff. And it told him to get up in a tree and play a leprechaun. We're going to get down to the bottom of this. Yeah, still on there, guy. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, man. This guy helping to direct traffic says he's prepared for his encounter with the leprechaun. He's suited up from head to toe. This wars all smells right here. This is a special leprechaun flute, which has been passed down from thousands of years ago from my great-great-grandfather, who was Irish. I just came to help out. Others just came to get lucky in hopes a pot of gold may be buried under this tree. I'm going to run a backhoe and uproot that tree. I want to know where the gold is. I want the gold. Give me the gold. I want the gold. This is Brian Johnson, NBC 15 News. People will do anything for a pot of gold. I mean, anything. You know what I like? I like the amateur sketch of the leprechaun. Yeah, it looks like somebody yeah. got a really good look at it and got that good drawing out there. Okay, so I just want to say a couple of uh, things before before we wrap up this section to really put Crichton um, Mobile into context for the purposes of uh, the rest of the show. So the Crichton na neighborhood or suburb in Mobile is a low income, one of the lowest income neighborhoods in America. Um, research shows that this neighborhood has a um, income lower than 95.6% of U.S. neighborhoods with a 34% um, rate of childhood poverty. It didn't get there by accident. It was once um, a labor stronghold. And um, there was a lot of sort of black wealth being built in the Mobile um, and Crichton area in 1933 and 1943. There were... Um, Uprisings slash uh, massacres where white people attacked um, black uh, union organizers and people working for labor rights. Um, Alabama has not fully recovered from that. Um, and even in and of itself, Crichton um, used to be called the neighborhood used to be called Napoleonville. Um, and the neighborhood was renamed in the early 1900s after a Confederate veteran and transplant um, as part of the sort of rewriting of history to favor the lost cause, which we talked about the phenomenon of that in our Marvin Gaye Star Spangled Bangers episode and, and how that was resurrected. Um, it, it was once a tight knit space. It still continues to be a tight knit space, but like it has routinely been attacked by um, white mobs which have gone into, um, you know, lynch, rape and burn with uh, one of the more recent examples of that being in 1981, where Michael Donald was randomly lynched by Klan members as a retaliation killing. And so that's like a huge part of the story and the things that are shaping the neighborhood. And then the last thing that I'll, I'll say is that um, there's also a lot of ways in which other people, like specifically white business owners online and in Alabama, have continued to monetize the Crichton Leprechaun story and use it for their own personal gain, selling T-shirts. Even the sketch um, was sold at auction for a certain amount of money. But a lot of those resources have not gone back um, into the community. So the community hasn't benefited, even though they're constantly sort of being talked about in these ways. And so that's that's a little bit of the backstory that's really the setup for what happens with the Crichton Leprechaun. Yeah. And I think we should probably name that, although we know that this happened in 2006, yes. we're putting it here in the kind of 90s verses for a couple of different reasons. One, I mean, I think it's interesting that we have a Leprechaun as kind of the, the figure here, but, you know, those of us who grew up in the 90s remember that there was a whole franchise series that was pretty popular 
in the horror movie genre, which I was a fan of in the 90s. I was huge into horror and the Leprechaun movies were a thing. Like first came out in the early 1990s. There was like. Yeah, around 1993, the first Leprechaun came out. Yeah. And you have like multiple versions of those movies. There's even a Leprechaun in the hood that came out right in the tail, probably shot in the late 90s and then came out right in, in the year 2000. 2000, March 2000. So that's why we're placing it here. We think it fits, but uh, yeah, there's also, sorry, there's also like a huge part of this around. So the theme of the leprechaun movies for folks that haven't seen it is a story of a vengeful leprechaun that feels like it's been deprived of um, its economic treasures. So it goes out. And so like, usually it's like a greedy person goes out and they steal, um, I believe the leprechaun's magic wand or something like that. And that triggers the leprechaun coming to seek revenge. And so in the late nineties, they filmed leprechaun in the hood, which was leprechaun five which really, you know, took that story and set it in the context of, um, you know, a black black community in the hood and the, and the theft of, uh, you know, money, success, talent, a number of other things. And so that's really setting the context. It's a cult classic that's really setting the context for um, this story in 2006, a few years later. Yeah, and I think there's a really strong element, I think, in this story um, and also in the in the next kind of folktale that we'll get into about um, people really just trying to have ownership over kind of the story that's being told about the place that they're from. I think one of the fascinating things I found about the new segment, honestly, is that there were two people in there that look exactly like, you know, famous like 90s and early 2000s rappers. So there's there's a guy that looks exactly like Cameron. Exactly. Um, and then. <laughs> the dude who's saying it he's going to occur to me, but you're right. And then the dude who said he's going to uproot the tree looks exactly like Lil John. That is like, that's so funny. That damn. Could it be I them? Didn't even, this, I didn't even put that together. <laughs> that's what I want to know. Uh, but yeah, the, just the, just the function of these stories as like, as these folk tales is like being a way to, to shape and control um, the narrative about the community that you're in. Um, should we dive into Chupacabras? Yes, we should. Thank you. Uh, all right. So my folktale is going to be the story of the Chupacabras, which first emerged in 1994 in the small town of Canovanas in, in Puerto Rico. In that region, local residents discovered dozens of farm animals um, you know, popping up dead, including like ducks, rabbits, pigs, chickens, and, and goats. And uh, more of the sightings tended to be of dead goats, and so hence the name Chupacabra, which means uh, goat sucker. That's where this folktale gets its origins from. So it started as people, you know, finding dead farm animals, but then, you know, some of the residents actually started reporting the actual sightings of the things that they thought were actually killing the animals. So people described the animal as this kind of grotesque creature that was about three feet tall with like membraned wings and a hunched back and, and really large, like red eyes, almost alien like and covered with like scales. Some people had described it as quills. Um, it, it was said to kind of resemble a kangaroo since it's leapt from, it leapt from like its large back legs and had like really tiny front arms. And people, a lot of people actually reported like really strikingly pungent smells. 
Um, now, what's strange is like this is a story that you know has like very clear origins in Puerto Rico, but pretty soon after early sightings of of this uh, this creature. The stories like sightings start to spread all throughout Latin America. You get it um, all throughout kind of different parts of Latin America, lots of sightings of Mexico, lots of sightings along the southern border of the United States. And there were even sightings within the United States as far up as Maine. Um, and so what's also fascinating is that there was this almost like pretty significant cultural appeal that this story took um, in a relatively short amount of time. And this is like pre-internet days before we even conceived of things of going viral. But this is one of those things that like went viral fairly quickly. There were multiple news segments, you know, the media was heavily involved in like perpetuating this this story. Uh, there was a whole episode of Cristina, like dedicated to the Chupacabras. And if you don't know Cristina, Cristina was like, you know, the the Latin opera like of the 90s. Um, you know, there were TV and music references as well, which we'll talk about. Uh, in Puerto Rico, the the story was so widespread. So it wasn't just like rumors of something going on. It was a part of like public conversation. It actually led to the Agricultural Commission in the Puerto Rican House of Representatives to launch an official like government investigation. You know, you had scientists pouring into the mix, journalists pouring into the mix, trying to figure out like what is actually going on. And, and, and a lot of scientists tried to explain the phenomena away. You know, they use kind of scientific thinking to say, actually, no, these are just probably dogs or some other kind of animal that's inflicted with some sort of disease. And that's what might give it kind of its weird appearance. Um, but those are, you know, it's likely that that's what it's, what's going on. And nonetheless, I think like people continued to believe that it was something else. And it had like a real significant hold over the people in Puerto Rico um, and in particular in that region of Canovanas. I'm curious, Teresa, what were your memories of the Chupacabra um, when when it popped up in 94? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in 1994, I was living in Boston and um, I must have heard about it from, you know, family in Puerto Rico. And, um, immediately I was like hooked. <laughs> I was like, this chupacabras is very interesting. Um, and trying to figure out, all of us were trying to figure out like, what was it? Right. Like, was it an alien? Um, was it a, um, some sort of horrible experiment from the U.S. government? So that was like another very popular uh, theory was that the U.S. government in their research labs created some this monster and then it escaped. Was it, um, you know, um, monkeys, which are also not native to Puerto Rico and were brought in for uh, research purposes. So there's a lot of stories actually in Puerto Rico about escaped monkeys. Wow. <laughs> but anyway, so they were like, is it like an escaped monkey? Is it a rabid dog? Like, you know, is it Satan? Um, that was another popular one. Um, so yeah, I just, I got really obsessed with it. And then, you know, when I moved to New York in, in 1996, still obsessed and, um, and just remember all the t-shirts, the refrigerator magnets, <laughs> the, in, like it was just, it was such a craze and I, I was part of it. I loved it. I was into it. I, I, I definitely remember it like populating, uh, probably watching it for the first time via news segments that, I would see mm -hmm. on TV and like I was, my mom would watch um, this show 
called Primer Impacto, which was like, mm-hmm. it was kind of like a news show, but not really a news show, you know, like they did a lot of sensationalized stories. Um, mm-hmm. Like that's, you would definitely see like whole news segments dedicated to like the, the one shaman in Brazil who can predict the winner of the World Cup. Like it'd be a whole mm-hmm. new segment just on that person. And so that that's what that's that show was like. But um, but that's where I would see it a lot because my mom would watch it religiously because um that's where Walter Mercado would pop up. It was it would be during that <laughs> broadcast. Mm-hmm. So uh we would watch it just for that. But um but I remember seeing it growing up, like hearing it a lot. And it's fascinating because you know, you were saying like there was a whole craze around it, people had merchandise around it. And the story pops up sometime in early 1994, and I guess within a few months at the Puerto Rican Pride Parade in New York City, um, which was that June of 94, Mm -hmm. there were so many people wearing t-shirts of the chupacabras that like even local news reporting had to like focus on it because they're like, what the, what is this? Like what's going on? Um, So that's, it's fascinating how quickly like that appeal happened. I'm curious, what was it in the story of the chupacabra that like attracted you to it? It was, (laughs) well, part of it was the humor around it. I mean, I know initially it was supposed to be really scary and, you know, a lot of kids were scared. They're thinking that, you know, it's desanguinated all the, all the livestock. And so it's going to get sick of the livestock soon and going to go to humans. So that was like a a popular kind of fear that people had. Um, But it was also kind of funny. And in fact, those t-shirts to me were hilarious because the majority of the t-shirts were not like um, kind of scary. They were more funny. There were a lot of um, cartoony versions of the chupacabras. Like there's one famous one of, of, of the chupacabras sucking on a goat through a straw wearing boricua, like dressed like he was going to the Puerto Rican Day Parade, wearing like a boricua tight t-shirt and and short shorts and you know it's like he was ours you know he in some ways represented puerto rico even though he also represented kind of a lot of the fear and anxiety that we were facing i feel like we also reclaimed him as like a nationalist Mm. symbol so so sort of similar to to the coqui right which is the puerto rican tree frog which is like emblazoned and everything um there was even t-shirts of the coqui hanging out with the chupacabras, you know? And then there was a, another subgenre that really disturbed me, which was of the coqui, no, not the coqui, the chupacabras as a lecherous man who was like thirsting after women. So there was like something, there was like wow. some something around like he can't exist on blood alone or something. So there was a whole sort of subgenre of lecherous chupacabras also. Now, I know, Brandy, for you, like when you and I talked about chupacabra, your kind of immediate recollection of that wasn't like the phenomena around the story. Like it wasn't necessarily something you had you had noticed kind of growing up, but you had related it to a music album, right? The Imani Coppola. I'm, I'm curious, like what you think that is that's in relationship to like, I mean, I think it speaks to like almost its popularity. Right. Um, I don't know exactly when that album came out, but. uh. So I think, I believe the album came out around 2000. So, and, and so I was at a women's college at this point in time and pretty much only listened to uh, women musicians. And Imani Coppola was like a popular artist on the sort of Lilith Fair circuit, if you will. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And she had an album 
um, with that name. And she actually later said that she didn't even know um, what it was. Like she thought it was an alien. So she thought she was naming her. <clears throat> she thought she was naming her album after a type of alien and then realized later um, what it was. It was like slightly horrified. But I do think this also speaks to like this sort of pre-internet time where mm-hmm. we're still as, you know, somewhat segregated in terms of our echo chambers, our stories, like the things that we hear. Um, and even though I know that the um, Alabama Leprechaun is like kind of early 2000s, it still um, predates that time where everything's kind of intermingled and we all are having more of the same shared frame of reference. And so I think there's something interesting about the fact that you guys hadn't heard this story and I was shocked by that and I hadn't mm-hmm. heard um, of your folktale and you guys were shocked by that, that I think speaks to, again, what that time was like for us. Yeah, I think one of the commonalities between these two stories um you know, both the Crichton Leprechaun and the Chupacabras is they both kind of center around a very particular place, like have very clear origins, right? Um, you know, Mobile in one and with the Chupacabras, it was this kind of small town, Canovanas. And I, I guess I wanted to ask you, Teresa, like, you know, as, as, as the resident Puerto Rican historian here in this podcast, at least right now, <laughs> like, what should we know about this particular region that, uh, that might uh-huh. just help kind of add a little bit of, of color and shape to the story? Sure. So um, it's actually pronounced Canovanas. Um, and Dang, sorry, Stephen. Should... <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. It's all good. Um, it, Prior to the prior to the sighting in Canovanas, there was actually some reports of um, of some desanguinations of livestock in like desanguination is a word, right? Like bloodletting is that? I think right? it is. <laughs> Am it'll, I making it'll be it up? A word today. Um, anyway, it sounds good. Um, uh, in other towns like Norokovis, I think, and maybe another town. And then in the seventies, there was also reports of that of of one in Moca, which is on the west coast of. of of um, the the main island in Puerto Rico, um, that was called El Vampiro de, de Moca, the the Moca vampire. So, um, so there had been like some you know sort of things like this already percolating, but it really picked up in in Canoanas because of a couple a couple reasons. One was because you had eyewitness testimony, um, and uh, and also because the mayor of the town, um, Jose Chemo Soto, who um, was quite a character, um, he was a former police officer and um, Vietnam vet, and um, uh, he ran and was successfully the mayor of Canovanas for f- uh, four different um, sessions, so over, I think, 22 years, maybe, something like that, which is mm. unheard of. And... Um, and that, and he was part of the what's called the PNP, which is the New Progressive Party, the the pro U.S. statehood party, and um, and that town was very much PNP. If folks know about that, that kind of the, the political issues in Puerto Rico, so it was like very much a lot of that, and then also very Pentecostal. Um, so the the role of Pentecostal uh, religion in in Puerto Rico has been. Um, it's kind of interesting as a separate story, but so the woman who was the the housewife who saw and described the chupacabras was a, a, someone who was a member of a Pentecostal church, um, who you know got a, you know got a lot of uh, 
then interviews and things. And then other people started coming forward, having seen the chupacabras. And so it became, it became this thing of, you know, like it's real. And so the mayor of the town decided that he was going to hunt it down. And so he would go out in camouflage with about 15 of his, of his uh, friends and um, armed every morning as part of his as part of his role um as the mayor of Canoanas uh to hunt it down never did catch it but i know that up until i think he was even 2012 or 2013 he was still searching for that thing and he just died actually in in december and and his daughter is now the mayor of Canoanas and um also wow. part of that that party but yeah dang it's like family ties <laughs> you know it reminds me of those excursions like uh Another 90s reference. Remember, remember after OJ was acquitted, he was like mounting like, you know, investigations to try to find, you know, who really killed like Nicole Brown Simpson. Mm-hmm, like, Come mm-hmm. on now. Come on. <laughs> we should we should have known. Damn. Um, cool. So that's uh, I think the other thing that's interesting to me about um, how that came up, I, I think, you know, from some of the stuff I read, like Chemo Soto was also. There were some like legitimate political stuff that was going on, like within mm-hmm. his like uh, not administration, but like within his kind of government, his his like municipality or whatever. Um, and it struck me that I think the chupacabras took on this kind of life, became like a really creative tool for politicians who were embroiled in mess to like distract attention away from what was actually going on, and in Mexico. Some people and, you know, a lot of the things that I think I've referenced here today come from this um, academic paper called Imperial Secrets, like Vampires and Nationhood in Puerto Rico, um, w- written by Lauren uh, Derby, uh, who's a history professor over at UCLA. And some of what she was talking about in there, you know, was elevating how in Mexico during this period of deep corruption um, by the the uh the pre party who was like the dominant party in Mexico, um the Partido Revolucionario something something, um the PRI. Um uh, but they he was like deeply corrupt. Like his brother was like in, like involved with like, you know, embezzlement of money, like reappropriating public resources and really enriching their own coffers, like engaging with uh narco traffickers and taking kickbacks and he was like embroiled in so much corruption and uh, the Chupacabra story, like all of a sudden took like a major foothold of the public consciousness and, and became part of the public conversation in Mexico in a way that a lot of people point to and say like, well, it became a very convenient tool to kind of distract attention mm. away from like the real fundamental stuff that was going on in, in government. So it's, it's interesting to me how it's been utilized in that way. Can I say that's also a parallel in Puerto Rico at the time. So we had at um, in the 90s for eight years, we had Pedro Rosselló as our governor and he his administration was completely corrupt. I think they had over 40 people be indicted on corruption. He was also known as the father of Ricky Rosselló, who was also governor of Puerto Rico, oh. who was forced who was forced to step down because of, uh, you know, uh, the political movement in Puerto Rico against him and, and his corruption and his total lack of any goodness 
And so he was forced to step down. So that's that whole family, um, that Rosello family is, is pretty infamous in Puerto Rico for, for corruption. There's also, I think, a sense of um, how the story really kind of got away from the people in Canovanas. Did I say that right? Canovanas. Canovanas. Did I? Canovanas. 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 Why am yes. I putting the accent in the wrong place? Right, um, it's okay. It's a long Come word. on, Steven. You're so rude. I know. <laughs> typically, typically, it's not me. Um, but this is a new season. We it's a new 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 mistakes. Um, but how the story really kind of got away from kind of the 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 initially, I think a lot of the media attention in this region that really had kind of shaped itself as an outsider to the rest of Puerto Rico in like moral ways, you know, through kind of its steeped uh, Pentecostalism. Um, it's like, you know, deep kind of alignment with like um, statehood as a movement, like was really kind of pushing itself as kind of this, this outsider status. And yet like as further and further media attention came in, like the, the story shifted from like, interesting thing that's going on in this place to like almost ridicule in a way that I think mm -hmm. people there really resented. And it reminds me, mm -hmm. I think I'm curious, Brandy, in your kind of looking up at the, the story of the Crichton leprechaun, like what was the, what was the kind of perception for folks that were ingrained within that community of how this story kind of bubbled and, and evolved? So, I mean, I think that's an interesting question. Um, I think for the people in the community, they definitely perceived it as something that was um, lighthearted, that for that they were, you know, poking fun at um, institutions, which I'll get into later. Um, also, allegedly, like uh, a, a man that goes by the street name Midget Sean, that's not my name, that's the street name he goes by, is allegedly the the man who dressed up as a leprechaun and sat in the tree and kicked everything off. Um, but again, I think there was something around a, like, you know, relief from everyday circumstances and storytelling about the community, but like outside of it, what you saw in terms of the perceptions of it on and offline was this, I think, opportunity for um, people looking through a coastal or white gaze to, um, essentially look down on this community and and see it as example of like like sort of foolery or look how silly they are or look how crazy these people are quote unquote but it's like the people that were like the most memorable um in that broadcast were the people that were trolling the hardest like the guy with the flute said he literally just came out of his house and saw it was happening and just like made some shit up so like it's you know i just i just wanted to help i just came to help <laughs> I just came to help. <laughs> I feel like one of the fascinating things about that new segment is in like in a very relatively short amount of time, you got it. You had a chance to like cover a bunch of different like black archetypes, you know, because like it's just a great kind of retelling because that dude is also like decked out in like military gear. Yes. <laughs> Which is funny. I don't know. I don't know if you guys have this in your, in your respective cultures, but I feel like in black culture, there's something about at some point in your life dressing in military attire or naval attire. Like, I feel like the older black folks get, the more likely you are to at some point wear a sailor cap. And I'm not sure oh, yeah. what that's about, <laughs> but that's just an observation mm -hmm. I have. Hmm. No, I feel like for, for me growing up, it was, um, 
hairstyle. Like it was um, getting the getting the buzz cut, kind of the marine style buzz cut with the flat top. Um, I'd see my my uncles wearing like military style boots, wearing kind of gray fatigue, uh, not green fatigues or whatever. Um, it was a thing. It was a thing for sure. But in a different way. And I, I don't know if we got into the sailor hats. I think it probably just had to do with like what what sort of like US military presence there was in the in the region. I think it's a I'll quickly say I think it's an interesting thing because I think it's both the disproportionate representation of black, um, Latino and indigenous people in the military that I think ties directly to it. But then there's also, as you guys were talking about, this story of militarization and 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 the ways in which government has like taken over our um our our communities and policed it in different ways that I think makes it fascinating when we're like sort of drawn to that aesthetic and owning it, particularly when we use it in a more sort of like rebellious context of art making, thinking of like public enemy and like, you know, different groups like that. Yep. All right. So these, both of these stories are just super deeply fascinating. That is, so you have to decide which of these two folktales has the most valuable lesson to teach us. And I think we've already started seeding some of our ideas, but and I think it's going to be a great debate. But the clear winner here is obviously the Chupacabra. Um, but I will, you know, for Randy's sake, go through the motions of the debate, you know, for the show's format and everything. I'm, you know, I'm a team player. Uh, let's take a quick break. But until then, Brandy, good luck. Good luck to you, sir. We're back and it's time to bring receipts. Recapping the rules for our audience and our guest who will serve as special judge, each side gets five minutes to convince the judge on their answer to the topic, which in this case, which folktale has the most lessons or important takeaways from it. Something like some some stuff that Stephen made up. Um, when our time is up, we'll hear a honk noise. A honk or something like that. And we're being judged on three criteria, energy, creativity, and most importantly, did we bring receipts to back up our story? And Stephen, since you've been sort of overly confident about this, we're going to go ahead and start with you. Five minutes on the clock. Take us away. By the way, I feel like our ding should be the like, um, you know, when your time is up, say yeah. And then we could do the yeah. <laughs> Who else in the level car say yeah? Yeah! We, we could do that. Yeah. I, I feel we like when you said honk noise, I was like, is that like the clown? <laughs> or is it? We could do that. We could do whatever sound effect we want. Okay. Uh, all right, cool. Well, let me go ahead and dive in. Um, There's two very particular lessons that I think the story of the Chupacabras teaches us, which I think is very valuable. One, um, I'll pull a quote directly from that uh, academic article that I was referencing earlier, um, written by Lauren Derby, uh, Im Imperial Secrets, Vampires, and Nationhood in Puerto Rico. Um, and in that, uh, she writes this quote that says that the Chupacabras was a reflection of how the U.S. imperial state was seen in the political imagination of Puerto Ricans. So that's my, that's the first lesson I want to throw out there. You know, Puerto Rico, if you don't know, has this um, colonial relationship that still persists to this day. Um, 
with the United States. Uh, it, it, it has the kind of the relationship of having to belong to, but not necessarily being a part of the United States. Um, almost this kind of like, it, it's a, it's a territory. It's, it's, it's how it's being, it's how it's treated and how it's oriented. Um, Puerto Ricans are shaped by this kind of federal authority of the, you know, by these kind of decision makers that Puerto Ricans have no real kind of say or relationship to, or no real participation in um, shaping those, um, those decisions that impact like it's, it's daily life. Uh, and you see this reflected in the kind of major like U.S. military presence on the island historically and even to this day. It's been used as a, you know, military strategic point in the South Atlantic. Um, it has the highest concentration of like U.S. military personnel. It's been used as a training ground for war preparation. Um, and I think like part of how the story of Chupacabras to me fits in is that in the eyewitness accounts by people, the Chupacabras was always described as an other, as not really being from us in the social context, you know? So a lot of eyewitnesses would say like, this thing is not human. This thing is not an animal. This thing is not anything that's known to us here uh, locally, which I think speaks to this kind of like, this in in a very subconscious way, the relationship that Puerto Rico has with uh, the United States. Um, you know, you see it also in the presence of like, you know, military um, installations like the Arecibo telescope, which for a lot of people in Puerto Rico, you know, a lot of stories I think I, I was thinking about with what, um, with the story that, that Teresa shared earlier about like, don't go, don't stray too far from the family because like you, you will be taken away by aliens. Well, this telescope, one of the largest telescopes in, in the world is used to like supposedly like broadcast messages to, to aliens um, and to invite aliens to come here. And so it's not kind of, to me, not surprising that there are these stories of like alien sightings in these, in these, in this region and in this area, but it is the Atacibo telescope for up until like the 1970s was controlled by the department of defense. Um, it's only been until like in recent years that it's been kind of turned over to, um, to more kind of scientific endeavors. So there is this way in which like the United States is kind of imperial imprint into the into the island of Puerto Rico islands because also they've ran military operations in islands like Culebras and Vieques. Um, that this is this story, I think, is a reflection of this this relationship with this imperial state. I think the other thing I'll say very quickly is I think that the other kind of element to the Chupacabra, the story that is trying to tell is about modernity, you know, and I think this ties into the colonial relationship of like building up Puerto Rico as this kind of industrialized area, a lot of the sightings would have the chupacabras, would describe the chupacabras as almost like a mechanical figure. Um, the pungent, like nasty smell people would, you know, uh, related to the smell of battery acid, uh, the kind of lifeless eyes, people would describe it as like these Christmas lights that you would see. The mechanical moves of it would be more like a robot um, it would fly really fast. It lacked genitalia. 
Um, and a lot of the sightings would actually position it in places that I think are are reflections of this kind of more modern technological age. Um, so mechanic shops, the Kmart, there were a lot of sightings around the telescope, um, and uh, which I think is is interesting. Um, there was a, and actually I should, I think my time is up. Dang. But let me just say one last thing about the the chupacabra. So I think that the story here is beware of this this industrial this nation that is imposing its influence and control over over Puerto Ricans. And secondly, beware of what it brings. Beware of this technology that is reshaping the fundamental like nature of who we are as people. So I think the Chupacabras has a lot to teach us. And those were just a couple things that I wanted to point to. And I'll leave it at that. And I will turn it over to you, Brandy. That was great, Stephen. That was a good argument. Here's where I'm going to start. I'm going to start about with talking about the racial wealth gap, which uh, we touched on earlier. And um what we see is the racial wealth gap starting with a failure to provide formerly enslaved people with a certain amount of um, land that was an, an opportunity and the failure of the sort of promise of the kind of what we call the 40, 40 acres and a meal and all of those things, the failure to acknowledge the theft of labor intellectual property. Um, and I, what I mean by that is, you know, the number of patents that were filed based on agricultural and industrial tools developed by enslaved labor, which families continue to build their wealth on in this country. Um, the, the theft of a chance for the most skilled labor force in America at that time to build their own version of the American dream and the literal stealing of land, money, and freedom in order to maintain an economic class built on race. So it's not just a story of um, what we weren't um, granted that we deserved, but like even when we had it, there was a lot of ways in which it was stolen out from under us. And so when you look at Crichton, you see a community that was systemically robbed of its resources, ripped apart by highways like many Black communities in America, and you see this story of, you know, white people loving the Crichton leprechaun, but still fearing um, black people in this country and black people living in Crichton. And it's within this context that the lep- that the Crichton leprechaun should be seen, not just as a symbolic representation of the theft and labor suppression wielded against residents um, and the looming threat of vengefulness from the broken social contract. But it should also be placed in the tradition of the trickster in black American folktales. By definition, tricksters are animals or characters who are seen as disadvantaged and weak in a contest of wills and power and resources, but they succeed in getting the better of their larger, more powerful adversaries. Tricksters achieve their objective through indirection, mask wearing, and through playing upon the gullibility of their opponents. They outsmart and outthink their opponents, and in executing their actions, they give no thought to right or wrong. Um, And you see these trickster tales in African-American culture, not just as a source of humor, but also as commentary on the inequities of existence in a country where the promises of democracy have been denied to so many of us. And so often when you see, when when you pair that with what we saw with the Crichton leprechaun phenomenon, you see them um, trolling 
people broadly and and specifically trolling a local news that has made the community uh, deemed undesirable for so long that only told stories of violence um, and death and harm in that community and not uh, anything of its potential or successes, which brings me to my second point. And that's, I mentioned earlier that um, it was an NBC affiliate that aired this, but specifically it was a Sinclair news station, currently the nation's largest television station conglomerate, with a long track record of forcing their hard right ideology on its local affiliates. It comes into half of our homes and they tell us to fear our Muslim neighbors and not worry about the white nationalists marching on our lawn. They tell us Black protesters are a threat to our democracy, but that murderers in places like Charlottesville are what make America great. And they deliver that message through trusted news broadcasters. Um, Crichton was a community that in the eyes of local news could only be seen as a source of harm and danger. And what we saw with the Crichton Leprechaun is an example of community organizing to push back against the narrative um, of the community that comes from outside the community. Perceptions of powerlessness and a story purely defined by its more traumatizing moments and um, inevitably that the power lies with elites to fix it and not with the community itself to own and tell its own story. And so I think that's part of what you see. And I might be over time, but I'm going to close with this one thing. I think oftentimes how we see Blackness depicted in media and particularly in local news is that it's assumed to be this inherently traumatic experience built solely on the memory of enslavement and murder. And there's no room for Black nostalgia, comfort, pride, joy, complexity, and nuance. And what we saw in the Crichton Leprechaun episode that I think makes it so important is this community um, will to sort of take back that narrative, to challenge that narrative, and to create our own story based in humor, whether other people understood that or not. Dang. See, this is why I get my ass kicked in debating you, Randy. Damn it. You're so damn good at this. Uh, not to tip like, nah, I feel like you're, I feel like you're, when I was listening to you, I was like, damn, well, so good. Not, tip, not to, not to try to unduly influence our judge here. Um, but I knew, I knew, you know, I knew this was going to be a tough one because Brandy is incredible. Um, uh, Teresa, let's turn it over to you. Creativity, energy, and receipts. That's the criteria. What do you want to say? What do you think? Wow. I'm like, I'm blown away by both of you. Um, and also five minutes is not enough time to give to these amazing, like, analysis of these of these things. Um, I want to maybe like off the air, we can have more conversations because there's a lot going on here. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, you know, in terms of creativity, I'm going to give that to Brandy, um, specifically because of your ability to sort of trace this idea of the tricksters to me mm. is really, yeah. is really compelling. Um, and, um, yeah, and just, you know, the story of how, you know, we're able to infuse both social commentary and humor into, into the, our stories and, and how that's a, uh, an act of resistance and subversion. And I love that. Um, so I gave that to you. Um, I gave the receipts to, to Steven on this one. Um, cause he went deep on the U S imperial yeah. colonial relationship. So I appreciate that. You know, uh, there's a lot of invisibility and lack of knowledge about the ongoing, um, uh, colonial relationship between Puerto Rico and the United States. And so appreciate, you know, 
having that those receipts and making kind of connections to popular culture and folk tales. Um, so it comes down to energy. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> and you're both amazing and wonderful. Um, I have to say that before I pick somebody. It's just, this is horrible. Um, you're both really energetic, but I really, I really felt, um, felt what Brandy was saying. Dang. She was saying <laughs> I mean, see, this is what I'm saying. It's, I get my it's ass because your energy so is much like, by Brandy. No, it's the energy thing. It's because your energy is so like calm and chill and cool. Whereas I think that's the issue. I have a lot of Tracy Flick energy. So I don't know from the movie is. election, basically like yeah, Hillary yeah. Clinton energy, except mm-hmm, in black woman mm-hmm. form. <laughs> Although I, you know, Stephen, though you did bring the energy when you were talking about your family stories. Um, so I had to just base it on this. I see. Last five cool. minutes, right? Ten minutes. Yes, but it's all good. No, I I understand. <laughs> I understand. No, I was like, I was, I had not made the connection between the news segment as like a, you know, as trolling in the story of a, you know, folktale figure that was known as a trickster. And I was like, fuck, that is a really good argument. <laughs> So. Also, that's a Claire mm-hmm. thing. I feel, I feel like I know my audience. I know my judge. So I was like, ooh, the Sinclair mm-hmm. thing, I feel like. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you went there. You were like, media yeah. conglomerate, blah, blah, blah. I was like, ah. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, one thing about the, the Chupacabras that I hadn't had a chance to say, but I found interesting as I was dig- doing some digging on this. So there was a movie that came out in 1995 called Species that was Mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. like this kind of hybrid alien human figure mm-hmm. that was like a it's like a it was supposed to be like a team of scientists that are trying to track down this female alien hybrid human figure that is trying to mate with a um with that is trying to mate with a a male figure and like the whole story is about we got to find this thing before like you know this thing happens and I was looking up the the notes around the filming, and part of it filmed in at the Arecibo Telescope in Puerto Rico, and which would have been shot in 1994. And I was like, "That is fascinating." And the, mm. the figure actually looks a lot like the Chupacabras. Yeah, something to know about the Arecibo um, uh, Telescope and that whole se- is that it's collapsing. Mm. Um, wow. so, and there's a lot of, yeah, it's like connected to the, the collapsing of our economy, the theft of our, um, of our, you know, labor, nature, mm-hmm. um, everything with the, um, the current economic structure of, of the colony. So the Arecibo has become like, this would just happen. Like the Arecibo, the fact that it's collapsing has, in a lot of ways, people are just like, this is very upsetting to Puerto Ricans. Um, yeah. Wow. Mm. That's, wow. Ugh. yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate this episode. Um, every episode I learned something, but this is definitely the one that has been the most out of my, um, depth of knowledge. And so I, I thank both of you for the opportunity to learn more about that and i definitely have a lot of rabbit holes to get down you know after we wrap up question is there any i don't know campaign or like way in which people could um 
A, if they want to learn more about what's happening in Puerto Rico, but like, I know there's a lot of things that are happening now, a lot of ways in which um, folks haven't still haven't recovered mm-hmm. um, from the hurricane. Is there any place that we should point folks to, to learn more, be active? Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks, Brandy. Um, there's a couple of things that that folks are fighting right now. Um, well, the, the biggest one is, of course, the Fiscal Control Board and um, the law that was passed by uh, Obama and the U.S. Congress, which was the Promesa Law, which basically sanctioned this new form of, of colonial extraction and um, by Wall Street vulture funds. And so there is um, a couple of things people are doing right now to fight um, that one is uh, trying to abolish this law 60, which is giving all these tax breaks to all these tech bros and gringos to come and sweep up all of the land in Puerto Rico. So folks are trying to get that repealed. So, you know, getting involved in learning about that. Um, and also, you know, just in general, there's also a fight for, for the land. Um, and so today, actually, there is a beautiful thing happening in the beach of Ocean Park. There was a, a situation where there people are calling her the Ocean Park Karen, where she told some people that they couldn't play volleyball on on this public beach because, um, uh, you know, it belongs to to her. It's a private thing, and in our constitution, it's we fought for our, specifically our beaches to be part of the patrimony, and mm-hmm. um, and so there's been a long mm-hmm. struggle to, to ensure that that happens, and so the, the beaches are a site of struggle right now, so just today they're having like a, a volleyball tournament, again, using humor and joy and fun, but to like lay bare this, this situation. Thank you. Wow, what barbecue is to Oakland, volleyball I was going to say, is barbecue to black people what like volleyball is <laughs> Well, it was just because she was playing <laughs> volleyball when when the yeah. when the Ocean Park Karen yeah. stepped but to her. I do, I do know I know yeah. I do know a lot of Puerto Ricans that play volleyball. Though, as a side, <laughs> <laughs> like I feel like Puerto Rico might low key be a volleyball powerhouse. To be honest, but S- I, sports is not my forte. Yeah, but like one last thing, I'm going to make a request, Stephen, for for this um, season. I feel like the winner of the debate okay. should get to choose an outro song that we can listen to 20 seconds of when we go out. All right. Is that something we could do? I think that's something we can do. So I'm going to. What would be your pick? Legend yeah, you of already a... came prepared. You, you know, this is, see, this no, is, no, no, you no. see what happened? Brandy's so confident in no. her debate prowess. She's like, I already have no. my song picked no. out. I'm no. already going to make this request at the end of the episode because I know I'm going to win. So no. this, this is what no. I'm up against. It's no, hard. no, no, no. It's directly related, Stephen. I'll have you know. I was just going to say Legend of a Cowgirl by Imani Coppola from the Chupacabras album from, I think, 2000 is going to be my request. I wish I had the song I wrote about the Chupacabras. Ah, We could play that. Well, if you find it, we could play that. But like until then, Imani Coppola (laughs) is my request. Perfect. Um, one last question for you, Teresa. If folks want to support also the the film that you're working on, um, the about the history of the Puerto Rican Socialist Party, where can people go to support and connect? Uh, I have no idea yet. Um, I'm still in kind of pre-production situation. We did just did get some funds to um, to do another shoot, so. Um, I don't really know. I don't have any do have, place. Do you yet. have like a, a cash app situation? <laughs> yeah, how are Not people even supporting you? <laughs> uh, I know I need to get to that. I just haven't gotten to it yet. I know it's bad. 
Is there like a website or nope. a handle? Nope. Okay, cool. <laughs> well, they just have to t- find me on, you know, what? find me on Twitter, I guess. Tere Novela. Okay. That's a great handle, Tere Novela. And the title of the documentary, one more time. Everybody Wants a Revolution. That's a quote from um, Alfredo Lopez, who's featured in, in the film. Yes. Yay. Shout out to Alfredo. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to roll out to Legend of a Cowgirl by Monty Coppola. For the winner of today's episode, Randy Collins Dexter. I'm sorry, Stephen. Please don't be mad at me. Wah, wah, wah. I'm gonna drink my whiskey, gonna have my man. I know you got nothing to say. I'm gonna have my man. I'm gonna seal their hearts and save for another day. Ain't gonna hang my hat. I'm gonna take off my boots. Ain't nothing gonna stop me in my pursuit. My stage. Time to rehearse. Gonna see all the wonders of the universe. Pack my bags and That wraps it up for this episode of Bring Receipts. We'd like to thank our guest judge, Teresa Basilio Gastambide. If you like what you heard, rate us and leave us a comment on your favorite platform. And if you don't like it, frankly, I hope the Chupacabra comes to get you. If you want more Bring Receipts, go check out our website, bringreceiptspodcast.com, and sign up to receive email updates. Next time, we debate two shows about nothing. It's Friends versus Seinfeld. What's the deal with Bring Receipts? Tune in to find out. Such a beautiful day, such a beautiful day. I think I'll wear my brand new neck shape. I probably change my mind, it happens every time.